0: Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the second morning service of Sunday the 22nd of February 2015, entitled God's Manhunt. And the Bible reading is taken from Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. This church has had the privilege of hosting this conference now for 13 years. And it is absolutely amazing what God is doing in the lives of these young people. So Bethel Free Baptist Church, you're investing in the lives of the future of these young people that are part of this conference, and I commend you for doing so. I say this a lot in my country in America as I look out across congregations. Do you know what's going on in America? If you you were to be in most of the churches that are in the United States today where uh, services are being conducted, you would notice a very clear and striking thing, and that is the majority of the congregations are 55 years of age and older. I don't mean the age of the church building. I mean the age of the people that are in the church. If you total up everybody's Age divided by the number of people there, it would be an average of about 55 years of age or older. And I'm not demeaning uh, those of us that are older, because I am now myself 55 years of age. But I want you to know this, if you think about it in these terms, in my country, as well as in your country, if we don't reach the younger generation in 15 years, a lot of our churches, as they currently sit, will not exist You understand what I'm saying? So it's vitally important that we reach the younger generation. And so I want you to know it's been a blessing to my heart to be able to be here and meet all of the young people and what God's doing in your life and the passion that you have to serve the Lord in the midst of all of our imperfections. And there's not a one of us in here that have arrived. Could I hear an amen right there? Not a one of us have arrived. God's not looking for perfect people. He's looking for committed and dedicated people. And so in that, all of us qualify. And so I thank the Lord for what I'm seeing in the lives of these young people. And uh, I will sit down this afternoon at some point or maybe later tonight and I write a blog that I send out to literally thousands of people all across the world and I will comment on what I've seen here this week and talk about the young people and the heart they have for God, talk about you that are part of this church and what a blessing it has been for me to be able to be here during these days. And uh, it's an exciting, exciting thing to see and I'm going to use this to challenge my home country of the United States and the pastors and the churches in my country with whom I have a great relationship with a lot of them. I'm going to challenge them to reach out in a greater way to the younger folks that are in the United States of America and challenge them like these young people are being challenged here. It's a wonderful thing, this conference. And so it's been an honor, Brother Larry. Thank you for the invitation to come. I'm glad that my schedule... Uh, was able to be worked out so that I could come. Uh, Before we turn our attention to the scriptures, I want to just give you a couple of things that I'd like for you to pray about. And I'm going to be very, very candid um, and very, very specific, but I believe this is a praying group of people. And uh, this church has supported our ministry for a number of years, for which I am deeply, deeply thankful. But let me just share something with you that has an international consequence to it. All right. Back in April of last year, I was approached by a a couple of other pastors in the United States of America with this proposition. What had happened? A friend of mine, Dale Armstrong, who was a missionary for 20 years in the country of Ukraine, and if you're paying any attention to what's happening uh, internationally, you know that Russia has been moving into Ukraine. They confiscated Crimea. They've been moving across the eastern border of Ukraine and making advances throughout that country. And what I believe Vladimir Putin very clearly wants to do is make Ukraine part of what was the old Soviet Union. He wants to conquer it again. And I don't see anything that tells me he has any other designs for Ukraine than that. And Ukraine, of course, at one time, one time was one of the top three nuclear countries on the planet. That is, they had a nuclear weapons program that they surrendered a number of years ago in an agreement made with my country, the United States of America. And what our country said was this. If you will surrender your nuclear capability, we will have your back. We will come to your protection if you are ever attacked. Well, tragically, unfortunately, what's happening right now is Ukraine is under attack by Russia. Russia, but my country is not fulfilling its commitment. And I say that embarrassed to tell you that, but my country is not following through with its commitment to support the country of Ukraine. There are some in the United States Congress that are doing their best to try to get my nation to fulfill its commitment, to try to get our White House and our administration to fulfill the commitment. Up to this point, they've not done that. However, in the midst of all of this that's been going on, my friend Dale Armstrong made a trip back over to Ukraine. He is now a pastor, or has been a pastor for about 10 years in the United States, but he was 20 years a missionary in Ukraine. Well, he went back over to check on the pastors there, the churches there, to see how they're doing uh, in the midst of this onslaught that's coming from Russia. And he met with about 5,000 Ukrainian pastors. The long and short of it is this. Out of that, totally unexpected, came an invitation uh, for my friend Dale Armstrong to go to the acting interim president of the Ukraine at that time, which was a gentleman named Oleksandr Turchinov. Uh, he served as interim president until May 25th when they had elections of uh, this past year and a new man was elected president. What the media did not report on about Mr. Turchinov was this, he's a Baptist preacher. You are hearing me correctly. The interim acting president for a number of months of Ukraine was a Baptist pastor, a committed Christian. When my friend Dale Armstrong met with him, Oleksandr Turchinov said to him this. He said, Dale, I don't believe I can trust anybody in your government, talking about the United States, where Dale is now a pastor. He said, I don't think I can trust your president. I don't think I can trust your secretary of state. The only people I feel I can have confidence in and trust are the preachers and the pastors of the United States. Holy oh, you're an amen right there, that he can trust the pastors. He said, Dale, what I would like for you to do is this. Could you find five men, five? preachers, five pastors in America who would be willing to come to Ukraine let me tell them what's really going on here, what Russia is really trying to do and those five men could form a liaison team that would go back to the United States, sit down with the President of the United States and communicate to him accurately what is happening in Ukraine. Do you think you could make that happen? Put together that group of five men. Dale said yes, I think I could do that. Well when he returned to the United States, I got a phone call and uh, I was asked, Dave would you like to be one of those five men that are going to go and meet with the acting interim Ukrainian president? And I said, uh, can fish swim? Yes, I would love to go and be a part of that. Well, the long and short of it is this, because of the Russian advance into Ukraine, the meeting that we were going to have with Mr. Turchinov, which was originally scheduled for May of last year, had to be Postponed. Well, May 25th, they had elections and a new president was elected. By the way, Turchinov did not want to be the long term president. He had no interest in that. He just served as the interim president. But a gentleman by the name of um, Petro Poroshenko was elected the president of Ukraine. Now, I'm not convinced Mr. Poroshenko is a committed believer. I'm not convinced at all that he knows the Lord. However, I will say this, he is very faith friendly. He is interested in what uh, Oleksandr Turchinov started. He's interested in continuing that. So anyway, the long and short of it is, the meeting that we were to have did not occur in April. It did not occur in May. They had elections. The new president, uh, Poroshenko, is elected. And then they decided we're gonna go over and meet with the new president in June. And I had two weeks' notice that we were going to go. The only problem is this. I have a very busy schedule, and I was scheduled to be preaching somewhere else in the United States. And with two weeks' notice, there were a bunch of young people coming to this conference I was to speak at. And I did not feel it was right for me to abandon them and leave them without a speaker and then go to Ukraine, even though I wanted to go to Ukraine. In fact, I wish I could clone myself and be in two places, which I could not do. So I said to the men that were going to Ukraine, I said, men, I'm sorry, but ethically, ethically, I believe the right thing for me to do is to go speak to those young people that I have been scheduled to speak for for about two years. I don't think it's right for me to abandon them, even though I'd love to be in Ukraine, and I'm sure glad I went to that conference. The Lord did some amazing things that I won't go into at that conference, but four men went to Ukraine. They sat down with the current president, Mr. Poroshenko. They sat down with members of the Ukrainian parliament, And here's what they were asked to do. Would you help us as we get ready to draft a new constitution for our country? We want a constitution, their words, not mine. We want a government, their words, not mine, established on righteousness. I want to hear an amen right there. We want a government and a constitution established on righteousness. If you know anything about Ukraine's history, their former president that they had to kick out before they had the interim president, Mr. Turchinov, and now the current president, Mr. Poroshenko, the other guy was a crook of the highest order. And Ukraine has been dominated by those that were dishonest and crooks. And what they're saying is, we want a government established on righteousness. Will you men help us as we write a constitution that will accomplish that purpose well of course the four men that were there said yes and uh, they begin to put together some components 14 things that they want in their new constitution such as this we want a national day of prayer where we acknowledge the god of heaven and ought to hear a glory right there that's awesome we want to acknowledge god we want the bible to be a vital part of the future of our country And folks, sad to say, even in my country of America, we have turned our back on some of these things that were the founding principles of our nation, but Ukraine wants these things. And so all of this, all of this has been taking place, and about... Two and a half weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C. to meet with a Ukrainian delegation that had come from Ukraine to the United States to meet with some of our elected officials. And I won't go into uh, everything that happened, but I will share, you this, share with you this, that the Ukrainian contingency, which numbered 20 people, met with us in the rotunda of our United States capital. How many of you know what I'm talking about? When I talk about the rotunda of our capital, there's a big dome over the top of our capital. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of that. Shelley's smiling you know what that's like have you ever been in the rotunda of the Capitol? it's a beautiful place beautiful paintings in there that acknowledge our history and our dependence on god and these ukrainian gentlemen stood in the rotunda of our Capitol. Some U.S. congressmen joined us, and then the five of us pastors were there, and we sang this song in the rotunda of the United States Capitol. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning we lift our eyes to Thee. Do you know that has not been sung in the United States Capitol? If If I know in a long time, maybe ever, that song has been sung there. But it was a powerful, powerful moment. There were other meetings that I had that I'll not go into. Some of it I cannot share with you. But the long and short of it is this. God is doing some awesome things around the world as his word is being elevated. Do you know in my nation right now, this hadn't happened since Thomas Jefferson was our president. Do you know there is a church service going on in the Capitol building? in right now, as I'm talking to you, in fact, it'll actually be several hours from now because of the time difference, there will be a church service that will be held in the United States Capitol building. What I'm trying to say is this, there is a component of people in our country that want to return with a vengeance to the God of heaven. And I'm praying that that will happen all across the United States, all across the country of England, all across the UK. Certainly I'm praying that will be escalated in Ukraine and that all across Europe we will see a turning back to God. That would be awesome to see a revival, would it not? For the glory of God. You say, Brother David, it uh, seems like you're excited about what God's doing. Trust me, I'm beyond excited. There are things that are going on that I cannot share with you that I wish I could. But trust me when I say this, we serve an awesome God who wants to use us, just regular people, for his glory. Never, Brother Larry, did I dream in my wildest imagination as a 17-year-old young man when I surrendered to go into the ministry, I never dreamed. That I would have the opportunity to travel the world. I never dreamed that I would have the privilege of standing in some of the places I've been honored to stand. Never dreamed that part of my life would be an evangelist. Sometimes I feel like I'm a state department official. I feel like I'm a government official working with these folks. That I never imagined I would have the privilege to work with. But it's an awesome thing that God has done. And I'm just trying to be faithful to his calling. And speak the truth in love. And tell people the truth And uh, so I'm asking for your prayers for me. There's some things upcoming. Uh, I'll be making a trip with these other men back to Ukraine very, very soon as my schedule will allow it. And uh, we will be sitting down and working on the first draft of their new constitution, including all these elements of righteousness and prayer and all of these other things. And so I'm asking that you pray and pray diligently for me. Please do that. My schedule is very, very busy. I've got more on my plate than I feel I can possibly fulfill. And God's given strength for that, for which I praise Him. But I desperately, 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 and I'm underscoring that. I'm putting exclamation points on it. I'm reiterating it over and over, and I understand that. But I'm telling you, I need your prayers like I've never needed them before. Some of the things I'm involved in are not without risk. And I'm not saying this to make you feel bad for me. I'm just telling you the truth. Some of the things I'm involved in in my nation and around the world are not without risk. Uh, My wife and I have had to take some precautions even at our own home. We've had to install a very detailed security system and other things because I'm gone a lot and I want my wife to be protected and I can't go into all the reasons why that became a necessity. I'm just telling you it did. So I need your prayers that God will give me strength that He'll give me His power, that He'll keep both me and my family safe and that God will use us in the days ahead. And I'm certainly praying that God will use each of you as uh, I am honored and privileged to be used to the Lord, that God will use all of us for His glory to be His spokesman and His mouthpiece at this critical juncture in world history. And it is a critical time in which we're living. And so uh, make yourself available to be used to the Lord. The Lord just uses ordinary people. That's all I am, an ordinary person. Nothing special about me, just a country boy from North Carolina that God chose to call into the ministry. I've tried, tried to the best of my ability to be faithful to Him, and uh, God has certainly blessed my life. And these are things that are heavy on my heart, so please make them matters of prayer if you would, please. Ezekiel chapter number 22, Ezekiel chapter number 22. Now let me ask this by way of introduction. Any of you follow, and I asked the young people this the other day, any of you follow Football, and I don't mean, you know, British football. I mean American football. How many of you know what American football is? You know, okay, do any of you watch it? Any of you watch American football on television? Can you get American football on television here? Can you at all? Does anybody know who won the Super Bowl this year in my country? Who won the Super Bowl? Yes, and I hate the New England Patriots, but yes, they won the Super Bowl this year. All right, now, does anybody in here ever heard of the Miami Dolphins, the Miami Dolphins? All right, uh, I am a rabid Miami Dolphins fan, all right? I want you to know that. By the way, my Dolphins have not done very well for about 20 years, all right? So I have, I have been on hard times because my Dolphins have not done well. However, however, in 1972 and 1973, my Miami Dolphins did something that has never been repeated in the National Football League, which is what they call it, where all the football teams play in America. The Miami Dolphins went undefeated. They won 14 regular season games. They won two playoff games. They went to the Super Bowl and they won it. They went 17-0 and did not lose a single game the entire season. That has never been done since that time. So every year when my Dolphins uh, you know, play, I have high expectations that they're going to do that again. Well, they haven't. By the way, every year when the last undefeated team in the NFL loses, I have literally a little mini revival in my heart because my Miami Dolphins are the only team ever to go undefeated. It was an awesome thing. By the way, playing for the Dolphins in 1972-73 was a gentleman by the name of Mike K-O-L-E-N is the way his last name is spelled. Mike had played college football at the University of Auburn, which is in the state of Alabama. He'd graduated from Auburn. He'd gone into the National Football League and played eight years of professional American football, all eight years for the Miami Dolphins. When Mike Cullen retired from professional football, he was asked to come back to the school he graduated from, Auburn University, and recruit student athletes to come to Auburn to play football and then ultimately go into the NFL. The coach of the Auburn Tigers who recruited Mike or asked him to come back and recruit student athletes was a guy named Pat Dye, D-Y-E. He was a legendary coach at the University of Auburn, college football coach. When he asked Mike Cullen to come back, Mike Colon asked Coach Dye this, true story, he said, Coach, what kind of student athletes are you looking for? What kind of persons are you looking for for me to recruit to come play football here at this college? Pat Dye said this, he said, well, you know that guy on the football field, if you hit him and you knock him down, he just stays down on the turf. And Mike Colon said, well, Coach, I haven't played against too many guys like that. You hit him, knock him down, they just stay on the turf. Well, Coach Dye said, Well, look, if you find somebody like that, that's not what we want at Auburn University. But you know that guy on the football field? You hit him, you knock him down, he gets up. You hit him the second time, he falls down and stays down. And Mike Cullen said, Well, I haven't played against too many guys like that either. Coach Dice said, well, look, that's not what we want at Auburn either. But do you know the guy that when you hit him and knock him down, he gets up, you hit him again, knock him down, he gets back up. You keep hitting him and knocking him down, but he keeps getting back up. At that point, Mike Cullen said, Coach, that's the kind of guy we want to recruit at Auburn University, right? Pat Dye said, no, not really. The guy we want to recruit at Auburn is the guy doing all the knocking down. Man, if you can find him, recruit him to come play football here. True story. You say, why are you telling us that? Because I want you to understand, Pat Dye was on a manhunt for a certain kind of student, athlete, who could come play football at that premier college. Let me give you one more example. 1996 in my country was an interesting year. America was the host country, Atlanta, Georgia was the host city for the Summer Olympics. That year. Do any of you remember the 96 Olympics? Something happened three days before the start of the Summer Olympics. There was a bomb detonated in a park in Atlanta, Georgia. That park is called Olympic Park. It's also called Centennial Park. Do any of you remember that? Anybody remember reading about that? That bomb was detonated and four people or five were injured. One person was killed. Initially, the police thought the man who planted the bomb and detonated the bomb was a security guard at the Olympics that summer. The gentleman's name was William Jewell. Do you know William Jewell had nothing to do whatsoever with planting or detonating that device? He was just a security guard. He happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Somebody thought they saw him coming from where that bomb went off. He had nothing to do with it. He was completely innocent. However, the rest of his life, that false accusation, that initial false accusation followed him the rest of his life. It's like he could never get out from underneath it, even though he was acquitted of any culpability. The guy who planted the bomb and detonated it was a gentleman named Eric Rudolph. By the way, Brother Curtis, after he set that bomb off, he fled to the mountains of the state you and I are from, North Carolina, and he held held up and stayed in the rough mountainous sections of the western part of the state of North Carolina. Now listen, I live in that part of the state of North Carolina. You know the area well, Brother Larry. You don't hang out in the mountains of North Carolina and avoid the authorities for 10 years like Eric Rudolph did without having some help from the locals, if you know what I'm saying. There were people funneling food together him and information to him, keeping him hidden from the authorities. The FBI in my country searched for Mr. Rudolph for 10 years. Longest manhunt in United States history. 10 years trying to find one guy. Do you know how much money they spent in 10 years trying to find Eric Rudolph? You're hearing me correctly. They spent over $4 million U.S. dollars trying to track down one man. Brother Larry, do you remember how they found him? An off-duty, first-year, rookie police officer saw a gentleman making a phone call from a phone booth near a convenience store, and he thought, that looks like the guy on the FBI most wanted list. So he called for backup. Backup came. Sure enough, it was Mr. Rudolph. He didn't even resist arrest. After 10 years, he was tired of being on the run. They put his arms behind his back, handcuffed him, took him and booked him for murder of one individual by planting that device that was detonated at the Olympics. And the longest most expensive manhunt in U.S. history came to a conclusion. Now you say, why are you telling us that? Folks, as important as it is for a football coach to find the right kind of student athlete, as infinitely more important as it is for the FBI to find the man on the most wanted list in my country, as important as that is, do you understand there's a more important manhunt going on right now? And God's conducting it. You see, Brother Dave, why would you say that? I want you to look at Ezekiel 33, or excuse me, Ezekiel 22, verse number 30. Ezekiel 22, verse number 30. This is the God of heaven speaking. Look what he says. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found, would you say the last word of the verse? But I found, what's the word? None. The word none literally means this. I couldn't find a single, solitary individual. Now folks, I want you to look right at me so I can see the whites of your eyes and you can see the reds of mine, alright? I want to talk to you for a few minutes from my heart, probably the most important message in a long time that I've ever brought. Please hear me out. I want to talk to you about God's manhunt. God is looking for men God is looking for women. Ladies, I'm not trying to shun you today. It's not that you're not important. You are vitally important. But I want you to understand God takes some kind of special attention to search down for men, God's men, who will stand up and live for Jesus Christ and not be ashamed to do so. That's what God needs in my country. That's what God needs in this country. Now, I'm not trying to put Brother Steve on the spot, but my heart was stirred yesterday as he stepped behind that microphone, opened his Bible, and in the middle of the city, he declared the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I could duplicate you, brother, and spread you all over my country, I would do so. That's what's needed. Could I hear an amen? He needs that from all of us. Now, what I want to do is show you something, three simple things about this one verse of Scripture, God's manhunt. Can we back up in the chapter just a little bit to the very first verse of Ezekiel 22? I want you to see the setting of this verse, Ezekiel 22:30. the setting of the verse. I want you to see the context of the verse. I sought for a man. Why is God saying this? Look at the setting of the verse. Let me show you what's going on in Ezekiel's day. Look at verse 1 of Ezekiel 22. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, Ezekiel writes these words. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Now thou son of man, wilt thou judge judge the bloody city? Would you look up at me for a moment? The bloody city being referred to here in Ezekiel's day is Jerusalem. It was a city overcome, overrun with rampant bloodshed. You say, preacher, that's not happening in my country. That's not happening in your country. It's happening in my country. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? Do you understand in the United States of America since 1973, through this heinous, heinous practice of abortion, we Americans have murdered almost 60 million unborn babies. Do you understand that is bloodshed? Can I hear an amen? There is no more wicked bloodshed than the murder of those that have never had the privilege to breathe air the first time and that's what we're doing with impunity in America and it breaks my heart. We are a country, my country, filled with bloodshed just like it was in Ezekiel's day. Folks, I love England. I love the United Kingdom but let's be honest, there's a lot of bloodshed going on here. Amen? Just like in Ezekiel's day. Watch your Bible. Son of man, wilt thou judge? Wilt thou judge the bloody city? Watch verse 2. Verse 3, rather. Yea, thou shalt show her all her abominations. The end of verse 2. Watch verse 3. Then say thou, thus saith the Lord, the city sheddeth blood in the midst of it. So in other words, in Ezekiel's day, there was rampant, rampant bloodshed. It doesn't stop there. Look at verse 11. Now stay with me. I want you to see this. Not only was there rampant bloodshed, there was rampant immorality. Watch verse 11. And one hath committed abomination with his neighbor's wife... And another hath lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in thee hath humbled his sister, his father's daughter. Now, folk, look up at me. That is the Bible's incredibly discreet way of saying this. Not only in Ezekiel's day was there rampant bloodshed, there was incredibly rampant immorality. By the way, you don't have to turn on a television long to understand in my country, your country, you don't have to walk out onto the streets of your nation or my nation to understand we are an immoral people just like in Ezekiel's day. It's heartbreaking. Well, Brother Dave, surely, surely there was somebody standing up in Ezekiel's day and proclaiming God's truth in the midst of the bloodshed and immorality. You know what? You would hope there would be. However, I want you to look at Ezekiel 22 and verse number 25. Please note this. Brother Dave, were there prophets in Ezekiel's day, preachers in Ezekiel's day speaking truth? You would hope so. Look at verse 25 though. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they have devoured souls and taken the treasure and precious things and have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Do you know what that means? It literally means this. If you're looking in Ezekiel's day for help coming from the prophets, forget it. Brother Larry, the prophets in Ezekiel's day were corrupt. The preachers of Ezekiel's day were corrupt. Now let me give you an illustration from my country. There's a gentleman who's very, very, very popular in my country. He is a pastor of probably the largest church in the United States of America. I'm not going to name his name. I'm not trying to put him down. But he was interviewed by one of America's leading television interviewers, and the man looked this prominent pastor in the face and asked this incredibly simple question. He said, sir, pastor, is there really only one way to heaven? Let me ask you the question. Is there really only one way to heaven? The Bible says there is. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Notice he didn't say, I am a way, I am a truth, I am a life. By the way, the gentleman I talked to yesterday, the the, the Muslim gentleman, he said, oh Jesus, you know, we, we, we believe in this thing about Jesus and this thing about Jesus, and you know, really, really, you know, you Christians say there's only one way to heaven. Oh, there's not one way to heaven. I said, look, John 14, 6, Jesus himself said it, I am the way. That is an exclusive message. I am not a way, I am the way. So this guy asked, this preacher, is there really only one way to heaven there's a simple answer one word answer yes do you know what this pastor did he started with this statement you know you're in trouble when this is the opening part of his answer well he called the interviewer's name well i am no man's judge look this has nothing to do with judging anybody it has to do with speaking the truth are you with me I'm no man's judge. He meanders all over the map and here's where he ultimately settles. He settles with this concluding statement, I really can't say there's only one way to heaven. Folk, I can say there's only one way to heaven because the Bible says there's only one way to heaven and Jesus is that way. What I'm trying to say is this, far too often in my country, tragically in your country, the preachers will not speak truth. In Ezekiel's day, the prophets, the preachers were corrupt. Well, Brother Dave, what about the politicians of Ezekiel's day? Were there some honest politicians? You'd hope so. Look at verse 26, though. Stay with me. I want you to see this. Her princes. By the way, the word prince in the Bible is the same as what we would say today, the politicians. Her princes, her politicians have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. In other words, not only were the prophets, the preachers corrupt, but the politicians were corrupt. Well, Brother Dave, what about, what what about, what about, uh, what about in Ezekiel's day, those that, that that, that would, you know, of the common people that would speak truth, were the common people Honest at all. I want you to look at verse number 29. Stay with me. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery. Watch this. And have vexed the poor and the needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. Now, folk, watch. Preachers, princes, priests. Verse 29. People all of them, corrupt. Now I want you to look at verse 30 again. Stay with me. This is an amazing statement. It jumped off the pages of Scripture very recently to me. Verse 30, God says, after listing all the corruption of the people of the land, the politicians of the land, the preachers of the land, verse 30, he says, and I sought for a man, note the next two words, among them. Who's the them? It's the corrupt preachers. It's the corrupt politicians. It's the godless priests. It's the common people who don't want to stand for truth. God is looking among all the corruption to find one person who will speak truth. That's the setting. Now watch verse 30 again. I want you to see the search. The kind of man among all the corrupt people that God is looking at, he's looking for a particular kind of person. What is he searching for? Look at the middle part of verse 30. And I sought for a man among them that should do two things. Number one, make up the hedge. Now let me ask a question. In our country in America, if you have bushes that you plant in front of your house, and we've got a bunch of those in front of our house, my wife trims them and keeps them trimmed. They look really nice. But we call them hedge bushes Everybody know what I'm talking about. All right When God says, I'm looking for a man who will make up the hedge for years, Shelly, for years. When my dad would preach on this or somebody else would or I would read this passage, I would picture hedge as a shrub hedge, you know? By the way, there's a phrase we use in our country. Oh God, I pray a hedge of protection around Brother Kistler. Any of you ever heard that before? A hedge of protection. For years, I would think a shrub hedge. And I would think, you know, why are we praying, praying shrubbery, you know, around people? Why don't we pray a concrete wall around them? I mean, that, you know, the devil can't get through. A hedge, he can step through the hedge and come get... Everybody know what I'm talking I'm not trying to be silly. I'm just being honest. The word hedge here, of course, does not mean a shrub hedge. Literally, make up the hedge means this. In literal Hebrew, it means, I'm looking for a man who will erect a wall, build a wall. Do you know walls are for protection? By the way, we have a wall of sorts, <laughs> a fence around part of our property. Your pastor has seen it. It goes around just a portion of our property. And I didn't build that fence, but I did try to paint it a couple of years ago. It was built when we bought the house. It was already there. Any of you ever done this, an old fence that's not been painted in a long time, and you slap a couple of coats of paint on it, and the fence just mocks you. It just sort of whoosh, sucks the paint in, and nah, 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 like, try that again, you know? So you put a second coat, whoosh, it just sucks the paint right in, like you haven't even done anything. Do you know how long it took me not to build the fence? I'm just trying to paint the thing. Do you know how long it took me? It was days and days and it was grueling and it was hot outside it was tiresome just painting the thing what's it like to build a wall God's looking for men women yes but men who'll be selfless and build a wall of protection hey guys how about building a wall of protection around your family Do you know the families under attack? Do you understand the devil's after our children? Could I hear an amen right there? Do you know these incredible young people that have been part of this conference? Do you know the wicked one wants to get them and destroy their life so they can't be a witness for Christ? How about building a wall of protection around our young people, around our homes? Oh, preacher, (laughs) Preacher, you don't understand. We live in the 21st century. You know, this is 2015. And you know what? It's just going to be this way. Young people are not going to live for God. And you know our country is going to continue to go down. Do you know I hear that all the time, Brother Larry, in my country? And here's what I tell people. When I get home on Thursday, and I drive into my driveway after getting out of the airplane in Charlotte and getting in the car and driving 50 miles to my house, if my house were on fire when I arrived at home, And the emergency equipment, the fire engines, and everybody was there. And they were spraying water on my house, which is completely engulfed in flames, trying to put it out. And I got out of my car and ran toward my house. Do you know a fireman could grab me by the arm and say, Mr. Kistler, there's no use. Your house is gone. It's done. He could tell me that all day long. But if my wife is in that house... If my daughter and my son are in that house, they can tell me all day long there's no use. Preacher, I'm going to grab a water hose and try to put out what I can because I've got a vested interest in what's inside that house. Are you with me? I hear this all the time. Our country's gone. Oh, the young people are just going to live that way. They're not going to serve God. I refuse to believe that, especially after meeting these young people here this week. By the way, can we give these young people a round of applause for their love for the Lord? This is a wonderful group of young people. It's not over and done. God can use us. Amen? How about building a wall around the future of your country and your church and these young people? I'm looking for men who will be selfless enough to build a wall. Watch the next thing. We're talking about the search. God's searching for men who will erect a wall. Number two, watch this. This is very important. And stand in the gap. What does that mean, Dave? Stand in the gap. Can I give you a very simple illustration? In our country, America, in the 1860s, we had what's called the Civil War. North and South fought against each other in a brutal, brutal, horrible, civil war. There is a battlefield in Pennsylvania where one of the key, pivotal battles of that civil war occurred. It's called Gettysburg. Any of you ever watched the movie Gettysburg or know anything about it? In three days, you're hearing me right, in three days at Gettysburg, almost 15,000. Men died in three days. They said there was so much blood soaking into the ground that the rivers, the rivers literally ran red with the blood of men from north and south who died at Gettysburg. I have been there on three occasions. It is a phenomenal battlefield to drive through. For the Curtis, number of years back, We went to the Tourist Information Bureau in Gettysburg and they gave us a cassette tape that we were to insert into the tape deck of our car. And this tells you how long ago it was because I mentioned cassette tape. Do you know what a cassette tape is? Okay, all right. The younger people are going, what, what in the world is that? Okay, Um, by the way, I was in West Virginia, which is kind of a backward state in our country. And a lady asked me, uh, your your children have recordings of their music. Your son Nathan has recordings. I said, yes. She said, you don't have any of that available on eight track, do you? Any of you know what an 8-track tape is? Brother Larry does. I mean, that's, that's, that's ancient history, isn't it, brother? I mean, you know you're in the country if they're asking about it. Cassettes, okay? But how many of you know what a long play album is? Okay, I was trying to describe that to a group of young people not long ago, teenagers. And I said, long play, LP, long play. They're looking at me like, what? And I'm trying to figure out, how, how can I help them understand what an LP is? So I said, it's kind of like a, a supersized DVD or CD. That's what it is, an LP. I mean, this is a cultural thing, isn't it? When we went to Gettysburg, they gave us a cassette. They said, stick this in your tape deck, drive into the battlefield. The narrator will talk on the cassette. He'll tell you to stop at certain places. You'll look to the left or the right. He'll describe what happened during those three horrific days called Gettysburg. Brother Larry, we drive into the battlefield. We stopped when the narrator said, stop, put your car in park, leave the engine running, tape deck playing. And he described something to the right. He said, now pull up. And there was a monument to the left and he described all of that. As we're working our way through the battlefield, there was one point where the guy said, now pull up to the next monument, put your car in park, leave the tape deck playing, look to your left down a little hill. And I looked to my left and there was a a ravine, a little hill that went down like this. And I could see about as high as the back of these chairs what was left of obviously a very hastily, crudely built wall. The narrator said this, during day two of that Gettysburg battle between north and south, some of the army of northern Virginia, it was called, that's the southern troops, built that wall. And they would duck down behind it. They would load their muskets up with a, bullet, uh, one round, they would stand up, fire at the raised place and we could see it on the adjoining hillside fire, peel to the back next guys would load their musket up, stand up, fire peel to the back and they were using this crudely built wall as protection from enemy fire the narrator said the wall served as protection until the northern army brought in the heavy artillery cannons And they started firing cannonball rounds down at that hastily built, crudely built wall. The narrator said this, one cannonball round hit that wall and sent rocks splintering in hundreds of directions, his word, and put a gaping hole in the wall. He said it's called a gap. Now I'm going to try to get through this, okay? I'm sorry, I get emotional every time I think about it. He said, you know what some of those young men from the army of Northern Virginia did, when there's a gap in the wall, they took their musket and they tossed it. And one young man first led the way and stood up and plugged the hole in the wall, the gap, with his torso. He said it's called, the narrator did, it's called standing in the gap. Do you know that's exactly what Ezekiel's talking about? I'm looking for men who will build a wall of protection, but if a hole comes in the wall, I'm looking for men who will be selfless enough to stand in the gap and die there. You know what our narrator said? He said, as that first guy steps up into the gap, it's now his body and the appendages of his body that are absorbing the musket fire it is the ears and the fingers and other parts of his body, forgive me being shot off by the musket rounds that are barraging him and then if a cannonball round hit him, flesh would be sent in every direction and he said when the first guy slumped over in death you know what his comrade behind him would do he would reach up from behind the wall grab what was left of his friend by his uniform, pull him out of the hole in the wall and stand up and now it's his turn to stand in the gap and The narrator said all day long during day two, young men died standing in the gap for what they believed. Now listen to me please. Not everything everybody believed during the Civil War was correct. There were some people very wrong in what they believed. What I'm saying is this, what we believe the Bible is right. And you know what God's looking for? Some men who'll stand up and be willing to die on that battlefield of truth. Do You know, Brother Larry, there's some things I'm not going to die for. There's some things I will die for. Can I tell you one thing I won't die for? It's this thing right here called a necktie. You say, why are you saying you wouldn't die for a necktie? Do you know in my country... Maybe here too, and I'm not against this. I'm in Washington, D.C., and what I'm wearing today is kind of part of the uniform in Washington, D.C. You know, they want you to wear, you know, a sport coat or a suit, typically a pinstripe suit, so I've got one of those. and I've got the white shirts, and I've got the blue tie and the red tie and the yellow tie, you know, which are the power ties in Washington. So when I go up there to minister to those guys, I dress as the natives in Washington, D.C. dress, you know. I do that. But you know what? There is nothing sacred about a necktie, is there? Do you know there are some people... In some churches in America who want to fight and die over where the pastor in the pulpit wears a necktie or whether he doesn't. Now, I generally wear one in the pulpit. But you know what? You're not, ro- not, not wrong and you're not in disobedience to the Scripture if you don't wear a necktie in church. Can I have an amen right there? Amen. Hey, I notice most of them in here don't have a necktie on. I'd love to be with you. I really would. By the way, I heard about a guy one time. He arrived at a church in North Carolina, a preacher, and he didn't have a necktie on. And the ushers out front, you know, the greeters, stopped him and said, where's your necktie? He said, well, I didn't wear one today. And they said, "Well, you know, we kind of like all of our guys to wear a necktie. I bet you've got one on the back seat of your car." He said, "Well, no, I, I I don't leave a necktie on the back seat of my car." And they said, "Well, you know, you probably just took a necktie off, tossed it on the back seat, and it's lying there. Would you go check?" He said, "No, I don't have a necktie on the back seat of my car." They said, "Well, would you just humor us? Would you go along with it?" He said, "Some church won't let me unless I got a necktie." So he walked out to his car, opened the car up. There's no tie on the back seat. He goes to the back of his car. You call the back of the car the. Boot, that's right. We call it the trunk in in, in America. He raised the boot of the car and he looked around. He couldn't find a tie in there but he saw a pair of jumper cables. You all know what jumper cables are? Yeah. So he took those out, put them around his neck, looped it through one time, pulled it up, comes walking back toward the front of the church with the terminals of the jumper cables hanging down like this and the two guys met him at the front door and said, okay, we'll let you in but you better not try to start something. (laughs) It's terrible, isn't it? My point is this. I'll not fight and die over this. But you know what I will fight and die for? The authority of the Scriptures. That the Bible you hold in your lap that I'm preaching from is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word, which it is. You know what also, and you ought to be willing to die for? The deity of Jesus Christ. That He is God in the flesh. You know what we ought to be willing to fight and die for? The virgin birth, the vicarious atonement, the bodily resurrection, the visible return of Jesus one day. Those are called the fundamentals of our faith, the non-negotiables. That has to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He came to do. We ought to be willing to fight and die on that battlefield, amen? And we may be asked to one day. I'm looking for men, says the Lord. The setting, the search. Look at the last phrase of verse 30. The sigh. S I G H. It's like God sighs at the end of verse 30. Watch. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge, stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Here comes the sigh. But I found. But I found. What does God say? I found what? Literally not one single, solitary. Individual. That was in Ezekiel's day. Today, God's on that same manhunt. I think he's going to net some men in this room today and some women who'll say, Lord, I want to live for you and stand for you. And I volunteer. I want to be the answer to your manhunt. Larry, when we went to England, was that three years uh, from England to um, Kenya? Was that three years ago, two years ago? Two Two years ago, Shelly, two years? Two years ago before we spent ten days in the country of Kenya, I got the privilege to be here for five days. And again, I want to say this. It's the truth. I love this country. I love the history of it. I love everything about it. I told Brother Curtis, I said, I want to go someplace I've never been. I've been to London multiple times, but I want to go to Oxford, England. By the way, I don't think there's any more beautiful city anywhere than Oxford, England. My wife and I want to come and sometimes just spend a week in Oxford, England. Can I tell you what moved me about it? I found out a lot about Oxford University. I had a misconception about what Oxford University was and how it was structured. That was a fascinating thing to have a tour guide explain the concept of how Oxford works. I mean, I had no clue. It was amazing. I have gone all over America and I have shared with congregations about Oxford, England and how Oxford University works all to make a point, the point I'd like to try to make today. All of that was interesting, but Brother Larry, you will remember when our tour guide took us to what used to be, I assume, a major thoroughfare through Oxford. It's been since shut down to automobile traffic. It now is only open to foot traffic. And they've peeled up the pavement, and there you can see the remains. Some of you may have been and seen this. You can see what's left of a cross made out of cobblestone. Our... Tour guide said this, he said, it was at that spot in 1556 that two of what is known as the Oxford Three died. When he said the Oxford Three, man, all of my seminary training came rushing back. I knew who the Oxford Three were, but I'd never stood anywhere remotely close to where those guys died. Now this guy's telling me this is where two of the Oxford Three died. He went on and explained everything I'm going to say to you. I already knew it. I knew where he was going. See, in 1556, there was a lady who was queen in this country. Her name was Mary, but she had a very descriptive adjective in front of her name. Anybody remember what that adjective was? Bloody Mary. And she earned that title quite well, didn't she? As she massacred in the Tower of London on Tower Hill, hundreds and hundreds of people. See, Bloody Mary captured two of the Oxford three and they were brought to Oxford, England. Those two men's names were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And they were brought to this spot in Oxford, England and they were presented this proposition, deny, deny your faith and live. Stay true to your faith and you will die. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley said, we will not deny we will not deny our Lord. Amen? So our tour guide said it. I'd read all about it. Now I'm standing where it's happened. They drove a pole in the ground here, a stake, and a pole in the ground here, a stake, and they tied they tied Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer's bodies to these respective poles. They exited and brought back brush and put it around their feet and then they brought lit torches and they lit the the, the brush and set it on fire and these two men are going to burn to death for their faith. Latimer and Ridley. Now i would read all about this. i would read the statement but when you stand where it happened I'm going to tell you brother Larry I've never been the same. I took pictures of that that I've shown all over America. As the flames are coming up Hugh Latimer's body and his buddy Nicholas Ridley's body amidst the roar of the flame with a town that's gathered including little children to watch these men die Hugh Latimer turned to his friend Nicholas Ridley and he yelled these words above the roar of the flame he yelled take heart Master Ridley play the man we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by the grace of God shall never be put out And did they ever light a candle for the gospel? Can I hear an amen? Watching those two men die was the third of the Oxford three. His name was Thomas Cranmer. He eluded Bloody Mary for about 12 more months and in 1557 he was captured. And he was brought to this spot in Oxford, England. And he was presented the same proposition. Deny your faith. Swear allegiance to what you do not believe to be true. By the way, we're being asked that all the time. Swear allegiance to something you don't believe to be true. Do you know one of these days we're going to have to decide, am I going to live for Jesus or am I not? Are you with me? Mr. Cranmer, swear allegiance to what you do not believe to be true and you'll live. Stay true to your commitment to what you believe and you will die. Now folks, I'm not throwing any rocks at Thomas Cranmer because I've never been where he was. Neither have you. You know, under that enormous pressure, Thomas Cranmer took a quill pen, dipped it in a black inkwell, and signed his name on what's called a recantation statement and denied his faith. Two men in a tribunal room said, you're free to go. And Thomas Cranmer walked down the middle aisle of a tribunal room and out the back door free in body, but anything but free in his spirit, because like Peter in the Bible, he had just denied his Lord. Are you with me? Our tour guide that day two years ago mentioned the time. I knew all about it. I'd read everything about it. Now I'm standing where it happened. Do you know how long Thomas Kramer could live with his denial? Three days. Three days is all he could stand And then the Holy Spirit just hounds his conscience So you know what he did? He burst back through the doors of that tribunal room And he's raving like a maniac I take it back! I take it back! And they said, you take what back? What I did here, I do not deny Keep talking like that and we'll carry you out and burn you now I love this He said it way more eloquently But in essence what he said is Don't, don't, don't threaten me with seeing my Lord carry me So they did They brought in the brush, tied his torso, left his hands and arms free, brought in the torches and set the brush on fire. By the way, there is a lithograph drawing of this that comes from the time period. Somebody very close to the death of Cranmer etched this out. You can go online and see it. It's powerful. As the flames come up his body, he lifted his right hand the one that had signed the recantation statement, and he just sort of looked at it, and then he yelled where everybody could hear him, this hand that denied my Lord, it's going to be the first to burn. And he held his hand in the fire until thumb, finger, 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 was gone. And then he raises a nub here five fingers still here, tips his head backward and praises Jesus till the flames consume his body. Do you know God's manhunt in 1556? 1557? Found some men, didn't it? Are you with me? I'm talking about strong, stalwart That's what God's looking for right now. That kind of rabid commitment. Now permit me one last thing and I'm through. Brother Larry, someone told me, Preacher, that that kind of stuff, that'll never happen in America. We'll never be asked not in our country, for that kind of commitment. I said to them this, we've already been asked. We've already seen it in America. What? In 1993, an incident occurred in Colorado in my country called Columbine. Does that name ring a bell to anybody? Yeah. Two young men, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold with automatic weapons went into Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado and they killed teachers and students. What did not come out until later is the purpose for why they did that. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were looking that day in Columbine High School for two groups of students, Christians and athletes. And they found some of both in the library of Columbine High School. Now, pardon me, I'm not trying to put anybody on the spot, and I'm going to use you as an illustration if that's okay, okay? I'm going to point, forgive me for doing that. I'm not trying to be disrespectful, okay? But they walked up to a blonde-haired, blue-eyed young lady named Rachel Scott. Again, pardon me for doing this. They, they put a gun in her face and Rachel was a committed Christian, and they asked her what came to be known in my country as just the question. The question. Here was the question. Rachel, do you really believe in Jesus Christ? Do you really? I mean, we know you say you do, but do you really? Because if you say yes now, you're going to pay with your life. You know what Rachel Scott did? She said, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me. Point blank range. Put a bullet right here. They walked across the room. Pardon me for using you as my example. I'm on a point, okay? They found an African-American young man, outstanding athlete, who loved Jesus. And they put the same gun who's just killed his classmate in his face and they ask him the question, do you believe? I want you to think about what he was realizing. What was going through his mind? My classmates just died. Do you believe? That young man straightened his spine, according to those that survived the shooting, and said, I do not deny my Savior. I will never deny my Savior. It's already happened in my country. I want to ask you a question. I don't know who we really think we are that somehow, you know, we're going to escape what our forebears went through. I pray we don't go through what they went through, but we might. What if somebody were to walk through these double doors with automatic weapons, come all the way down front and start with you, my dear brother, and put a gun in your face and then move to you and to you and then this row and just all of us and ultimately it was my turn and they put an automatic weapon in our face and they ask us the question. Do you really believe? What would you say? Oh, preacher, I'd say, Jesus is my Lord. Yeah, Peter said the same thing, didn't he? Though I'll forsake you, not me, I'll never deny you. Jesus said, before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me the same number of times. Peter did. Dave, what are you getting at? I'm saying God's on a manhunt for men, for women, for people, individuals who will say, here's my line in the sand, I'm on God's side and I'm not changing. I'm on God's side. Father, I pray. I pray, Lord, you'd stir us. But Lord, don't just stir us, change us. Change us, oh God. Now, friends, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. I want to ask you a couple of simple questions. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? I mean, really? Do you know Him as your Savior? We will not die for something we don't legitimately possess. Let me repeat that. We will not die for something we don't legitimately possess. No, we won't. Do you really know Jesus as your Savior? If you can say, yes, Dave, I do. I'm not afraid to admit it. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Jesus has forgiven me. I know He is my Lord and my Savior. There's been a time... When I came to him and asked him to forgive and save me, and he has. And I'm not afraid or ashamed to admit that. If you know with absolute certainty that Jesus is your Savior, you're not afraid nor ashamed to admit it, would you lift your hand and hold it as high as you can? He has saved me. I'm not afraid to admit it. Thank you. God bless you. Wow. What a beautiful sea of hands. You may put your hand down, thank you so much. Christian friends, I want you to pray silently. The most important question that I'm going to ask today is this one. Is there anyone in the room, you do not have complete assurance that Jesus is your savior. You don't know for absolute certain that when you die you're going to heaven. Hence, maybe going through your mind and heart right now is this thought. Man, if I were ever facing a loaded gun, oh, I don't know that I could say that Jesus is my Savior. I don't know I could stay faithful to Him. Friend, if you're not sure that you've been saved, would you at least let me have the privilege, the honor of praying for you? Is there anyone in the room that would say, Dave, look, you're talking to me. Man, I don't know. I don't know with absolute certainty that I'm going to heaven. I don't know that. It's no shame not to know it. The shame would be not to do something about it. Is there anyone that would say, Dave, I'm not sure that I'm going to heaven, but I want you to pray for me. If that's you, would you lift your hand long enough for me to see it? I'll take note of it and then pray for you. Is there any, anyone at all like that? Thank you. God bless you. Are there others? Dave, I'm just not sure. Just don't know. Friend, I love you. I want to have the privilege of praying for you. Is there anyone else? Father, I do pray. Lord, by uplifted hand, there's some in the room that are being transparent and honest, and I thank you for their incredible honesty. And Lord, I do pray for them. And Lord, what I'm asking is that today, in addition to lifting their hand, which is giving me this privilege to pray for them, It's an honor to do so. But Lord, I also pray that they wouldn't just lift a hand and let me pray for them and then just leave it right there and go no further. Lord, rather than doing that, I'm asking that today they would be concerned enough of their need for You that they'd be willing to speak to someone who can take a Bible and show them, Lord Jesus, how You can become their Savior, their sin can be forgiven. And they can leave today not wondering, not hoping, but knowing that they're going to be in heaven with you. Father, may they, they get it settled today, I pray. Now friends, I've got one final question before I ask it. I want to simply say this. I'm going to ask my dear friend, my brother in Christ, Brother Larry, to stand at the back of the auditorium right in the middle of the aisle behind where everyone's seated. He's making his way there now. If you lifted your hand and said, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven. I just want to implore you. I'm not going to twist your arm. It's not mine to do. I just want to give you this opportunity. It's what we talked about in the first session this morning. You could take this moment. You could just step to the back while everyone else has their head bowed. And Brother Curtis would be thrilled to take a Bible or put someone with you that will take a Bible and show you how you can know Jesus. Would you at least consider that? Here's my final question. As Brother Curtis waits in the back. I want to address those in the room that know Christ. Now I'm going to word this this way. I've thought it through. I'm wording it this way on purpose, so, so bear with me. God's looking for men, women, who will be rapidly committed to Him. I wonder how many of you that know Christ would be willing to say this morning, boy, Dave, do I ever get this. I understand what God's looking for. And I'm willing to tell the Lord this today and mean it. Jesus, I'm going to live for you now. I am making a decision like Daniel did. I'm purposing in my heart that I'm going to live for you like Daniel did in Daniel 1.8. I'm going to live for you now. And Lord, you being my helper, if someday I have to die for you, I'm just telling you now, Lord, my intent is to do that if I have to. I'm going to live for you now. And if I have to, Lord, at some future date, if I have to die for you, Lord, I'm just telling you, it's my intent to do that. I'm going to live for you now. And if I have to, I'll die for you later. Preacher, that's a hard thing to... Ask, it's even more difficult to answer. I know. As much as God knows my heart, I've already made this choice. I'm asking, will you make it? Young people that have been here this week, will you make this choice? Moms and dads, will you make this choice? I'm going to live for you now, Lord. And if I have to, I'll die for you later. Here's my line. I'm drawing it right across the front here. I wonder how many of you would be willing to step across that line onto the Lord's side, so to speak, and say, Lord, I'm telling you today, I'm going to live for you now. And if I have to, I'll die for you later. If you'd be willing to say that to the Lord, I wonder if you'd be willing to step here to the altar with me and tell God that. If you would, I invite you to join me here. God bless you, young man. God bless you, sir. Men, thank God for you, and ladies, oh, my soul, thank God for you, ladies. I'm just telling you, Lord, this is my intent. I'm going to live for you now. And if I have to, at some future date, I'll die for you. That is my intent. I'm purposing in my heart, that's what I'm going to do. Live for you now. And if called upon to do so, I'll die for you later. The church of Jesus Christ has periodically faced decisions like this at strategic moments. I'm privy to information, again, that I can't share with you, at least from my country's standpoint. Things are ratcheting up in my nation where the church is going to be persecuted. By far and large, too many are not ready. Now, it may not come. I pray it doesn't. But if it does, we're going to have to have decided what we're going to do. I've cast my lot with Jesus. I don't mind telling you that. Friend, if you don't know for sure you're saved, Pastor Curtis is still standing in the back. You could step to him. Lord, my heart is almost overwhelmed. As instantly I saw men and women stand to their feet and walk forward. Lord, some are standing here with their hands outstretched in prayer to You, making commitments to You. Others are praying silently. Lord, I thank You for these incredible young men and young women. I thank You, Lord, for the adult men and women that have stepped forward and said, that's where I want to be. I'm going to live for You now, Lord, and if I have to, I'll die for You later. But this is my intent. Bless each one of them, O oh God, I pray. Lord, may we lock arms together as it were. May we walk forward together as a mighty army. May we be faithful to you. And Lord, until you return, or until we meet you through the avenue of death, Lord, may we never deny you. But Lord, may we live aggressively for you now. May we buy up the opportunities that we still have. We have much liberty and freedom, Lord to declare the gospel, so may we use that liberty and freedom like Paul did to tell others about you and live aggressively for you. Now bless as Pastor Larry comes to close this service. Guide him, O oh God, by your precious spirit as you've so wonderfully done already this weekend. We'll thank you in Jesus' name.